part of what I love is just the passion of the people you're working with. When you're working with entrepreneurs and they're they're starting their own company, you know, this is a group of people who are smart, hardworking, excited about what they're doing. It's just a really fun group of people to be involved with. And you're helping them sort of achieve their visions uh, and bring something new into the world. And that's very rewarding. They, they really appreciate the help. And, and I know because having done it, just how challenging that whole path is. Hello, I'm Daniel Weinman, and this is Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. You see, in order to bring my startups to life, I had to go from non-technical to CTO. I failed again and again and again until I finally succeeded a few times. Now I think it's time to share some of these experiences with you, together with a bunch of amazing guests I met along the way. In today's episode, we have Lance Cottrell, an angel investor, advisor, mentor, and a great founder. He founded an educational platform in 2019. His entrepreneurial journey started in 1995 when he put his astrophysics PhD on permanent hold to launch Anonymizer, the world's first commercial internet privacy service. We hope you have a great time listening to this conversation and let's go beyond technical. Hey, Lance. Welcome to Beyond Technical, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Awesome. So you've been doing startups for a long, long time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I started uh, Anonymizer back in 1995 when I dropped out of my PhD in astrophysics. Amazing. Amazing. From what I read about you, you started a lot, uh, early with privacy and even before Anonymizer, you had you created uh, an email client or service. That's right. It was it was a what they called an anonymous remailer. So while I was still in school, I built this tool that would allow you to send emails that could not be tracked. So it made them all identical mm-hmm. and would bounce them across multiple servers so that you could you could communicate. And of course, this was before the web was really a big thing. Yeah. Uh, right, because the web was only invented in, what was it, 92. So most of the communications was by email back then. And I realized that I wanted to be more involved in doing privacy and building privacy tools, but I didn't have a clear way of sort of monetizing or making them easy to use with the tool that I'd already built, the email system. Mm -hmm. And so I started Anonymizer as a way of kind of democratizing internet privacy. Yeah, that's wonderful in the early days, especially, right? And then, of course, you you ran Anonymizer for 13 years and sold it. Am I right? That's right. Yeah, we uh, we started off in internet consumer privacy. Around 2001, we pivoted to actually focusing on providing B2B services for the government. And then I sold to a government contractor in 2008 and stayed on as their chief scientist, uh, I'd really only planned on staying for a couple of years, but fundamentally the the whole experience, the activity, the kind of problems we were solving was so much fun. I actually didn't leave the company until the beginning of 2020. Amazing. More than 15 years, right? From start to finish, it's it's uh, more like 25. 25, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a really great experience. I got to work on all sorts of aspects of the technology, of the security, getting into privacy, but 
I mean, for the last couple of years with the company, in addition to being chief scientist, they had the marketing department reporting to me because I'm also good at communicating about that's, these things. <laughs> that's amazing. And you you also invest in companies and in in uh, you're active in the angel investing investment community, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. When I left the Washington, D.C. area and moved out to California, one of the first things I did was join the North Bay Angels. Mm -hmm. So that's an angel investment group just north of San Francisco uh, and started to get involved with that and really discovered that I had a passion for investing in as well as working with early stage startups. And so mm -hmm. I became involved in mentoring a number of local companies. And it's kind of, it, it allows you to have most of the excitement and fun of doing a startup without the hundred hour work, work weeks and continuous existential dread. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can live it vicariously. Yeah, precisely. What is it about entrepreneurship that attracts you? For, for you to, to stay on for 25 years, uh, I, I can see that technology and the science attracts you, but about, about helping entrepreneurs and, and the videos you create are amazing for that. What, 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 what was it that made you want to do this? When I joined the North Bay Angels, some of the other angels invited me to get involved in a local mentoring organization just because I had this experience. And so I got started doing that. Part of what I love is just the passion of the people you're working with. When you're working with entrepreneurs and they're, they're starting their own company, you know, this is a group of people who are smart, hardworking, excited about what they're doing. It's just a really fun group of people to be involved with and you're helping them sort of achieve their visions uh, and bring something new into the world. And that's very rewarding. They, they really appreciate the help. And, and I know because having done it, just how challenging that whole path is. And no one's qualified to be an entrepreneur the first time. You know, it's a vertical learning curve. There's infinite numbers of things you need to learn. And I had to do all that the hard way. There really was no infrastructure for that back in the 95. Whereas now, you know, we can really make that much easier. And then the videos came about because I realized as I was mentoring more and more people, I was giving the same advice over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that seemed really inefficient. And I could only help people one-on-one -on -one. and I don't scale well, right? There's only yeah. so many hours in the day. I can only talk to so many people. So by creating the videos, I was able to reach out to a much larger population of entrepreneurs and help them. And also when I'm talking to someone, rather than answering the question again, if a particular topic comes up, I can just say, why don't you go watch that video? And then if you've got yeah. follow-up questions, we can talk, but let's not waste those precious minutes that we're spending together, just rehashing something I've already covered. The people you, you mentor uh, refer to you as the boot. It, how much uh, pressure do you put on them? You know, I, I, I try to keep it to be a boot of love, but I think people need kind of a combination of motivation sometimes, particularly to do some things that they don't like. So if it is a technical mm -hmm. founder, often the networking, the reaching out, the making phone calls, the engaging with customers is something that they need a, a bit of a boot to get going on because their natural comfort zone is sitting behind the keyboard and typing away. Yeah. Um, you know, so th those things come up a lot where they, they need to, you know, kind of be pushed 
to engage in, in the appropriate directions. You mentioned the, the needs of technical founders around this. How, uh, how is the distribution between the people you help, either investing or, or just mentoring, uh, between technical people and non-technical people? You know, I think it's actually fairly well balanced. Um, I, I source deals from all over the place. And yeah, probably roughly 50-50 between the very technical founders who sort of building the tool that they wanted and they're coding everything versus the people who are typically in a business and really understand the problem because they're experiencing it firsthand but don't have the skills to go build it. And so they're either trying to search for a technical co-founder or raise enough money to hire some sort of either hire developers or an outside development firm. Uh, and it's really interesting because those two sides come with very different kinds of challenges yeah. and problems and motivations. Yeah. And uh, as you know, this, the goal for this podcast is to help non-technical founders Uh, thrive in in the startup world even without deeply knowing or, or knowing how to do the technical work what would be the boots of love for non-technical founders when the, the the most common ones you know i think for the non-technical founders uh, there is a need to learn enough of the technology enough about mm -hmm. what's going on to it to be able to detect when someone's blowing smoke right they need yeah. to be able to see, is this real? Does this make sense? And, uh, you know, do I, do I trust this, this developer and believe the, the predictions they're making, the estimates, the commitments that they're bringing forth? Often the non-technical founders that I work with, and it really, that's a huge broad tent, right? So it covers all kinds of people. Yes. But when they are particular subject matter experts in some area, I think sometimes they drill down so hard on that one piece mm -hmm. that they ignore some of the other aspects of the business that they need to look into. You know, how are you going to go to market or, you know, in a marketplace, for example, often they're creating the marketplace because they've experienced one side of that and the pain that comes with that. And so when I look at the business model, it's incredibly rich and detailed about one side of the marketplace But the other side sort of looks mm -hmm. like build it and they will come. And that's not, you know, a, a viable approach and getting them to take that step back. And also when talking about the business to make sure that they're not bringing too much of their knowledge into it. And when you're talking to investors, they're not experts in what you're an expert in. And so making sure that you talk about that big picture as opposed to starting with this particular problem that you understand intimately But without the broader context, the investors just shaking their head. And how early do you start helping founders? I'd like to come in pretty early. Um, so, yeah, I definitely help founders at the idea stage. Often by the time they're reaching out to me, they're beginning to think about fundraising. So typically, mm -hmm. I think most of them have uh, started doing some prototyping. They're certainly talking to potential customers Uh, they may have an MVP in place already or be starting to think about that. Uh, personally, I think the earlier they engage with me, the better, because it avoids an awful lot of yeah. unnecessary work. One of the things I, I rant about continuously in my videos is the importance of testing your assumptions and making yeah. sure that you've validated all of those things before you build it. And that's probably even more important with non-technical founders, Agreed. because with a technical founder, really all they're spending is their own time. Yeah, They can sit down and code up the thing and test it and iterate, and they're probably enjoying that process anyway. But if you're shelling out, paying someone to do the development, you need to make sure you're building the right thing first. 
And yeah. so you want to do everything you can conceivably do to make sure that what you're building is the right thing before you pull that trigger. What are the tools for for validating that that you like to recommend non-technical founders to use? It really isn't a matter of tools to me. It's more a matter of process. You know, it's mm -hmm. can you talk to the customers? Can you show them wireframes? Can you watch over their shoulders as they interact with things? I think some mock-up tools are sometimes useful if it's an app or something like that. You'd like to see how people move through it. Like one of the real keys is to talk with customers about why they wouldn't buy your product or why they have been frustrated with other solutions that are out there so that you make sure you really drill down on which of these features matter, which don't, which things do you need to add to make sure that it's not going to cause problems. You know, often it's a case that you need to integrate with something else, right? It, yes. it has to fit within this existing workflow that's common across the industry. And even if you have the perfect application, uh, they're not going to implement it if it doesn't. And, you know, frankly, it'll fall back to just using Microsoft Excel or whatever yeah. kludge they're using now. One of the, the, the things I, I like to do when either when starting companies myself or, or when talking to other founders is to think about selling service in the beginning in order to validate your idea or to create an actual business and then scale it with technology. Do you see this happening often? I think that can be very viable in a lot of cases. Yeah, where where you can do it manually, do it as a consultant, do it that way to to demonstrate that it's it's an appropriate thing. I think it doesn't work necessarily for all business models, yeah. but where it's possible, uh, I like that approach. I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in doing things as manually as you can. So mm -hmm. I'll see people with a marketplace and they want to automate this and put in an AI and do all this other stuff before they release it. And my my suggestion is fake the back end entirely. Make yourself mm -hmm. the human in the hamster wheel driving mm -hmm. everything. You learn a lot. You watch all the processes. You understand the edge cases. You you know get better insight into the customers. You can retool your own human process really really quickly to iterate almost instantaneously as you learn, rather than building things out. And so, yeah, I think that's part of that validation. Anything you can do to be engaging with the customers around the thing that you want to sell to see, yeah, they want it. Yeah, they're 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 going to come back, right? Because that's also one of the questions that. As an investor, yeah. I'm always asking is you'll get some early adopters and go, oh, we had 50 people sign up for this. Great. Six weeks later, how many of them have logged in in the last 48 hours? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to get people to touch the thing you're doing. It's another to get them to adopt the thing you're doing. And that's really the critical thing. So metrics are so important while you're doing this testing to think about what are those key indicators that you need to be tracking and watch them really, really closely as you optimize the, the business. Yeah, and people can track those metrics without a software product. They can they can like sell door to door and know how many people, what's their retention rate. They can, they can do it from any kind of either concierge approach. That's right. There's, there's lots of simple ways of achieving these things without having to, to, to build out some really fancy tool set or subscribe to some big service. Especially early on when you only have maybe dozens to hundreds of customers, you can do these things totally manually. And then there's plenty of time and opportunity to, to automate all of that when you get to thousands of customers and that becomes yeah. impractical.
when a non-technical founder approaches you with a pitch deck and or wanting a meeting or something like that, maybe they were introduced to you by someone. What is the first thing you look for for non-technical people? When I look at a deck in particular, so typically if someone reaches out to me and they say they want to have a phone call, the first thing I want them to do is send over a deck so I kind of understand where they're at, what they're doing, and whether this is something that I think I can effectively engage with. Uh, and there I really want to understand you know, at a high level, what is it that they're doing and for who and why, right? You want to understand who's the customer, what is motivating that customer to engage, um, you know, what, what is this going to feel like? I, I really want to be able to picture their customers interacting with the solution that they're going to be providing. And that really applies whether I'm advising or investing. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of shocking how often you don't get that. Like I said, they so many decks kind of start off in the middle, or you know, use some insane analogy. You know, we're we're the Uber of bakeries or something. And like I don't I don't even know what you mean by that. Why don't you just actually tell me what you're doing in English, and let me understand that. In order to be able to tell a good story, you have to have uh, lived it for a while, and and I think you probably get a sense when you see a deck that someone has actually been working with actual customers or potential customers for for a while before coming up with that story, right? Yeah, I think so. That often you can tell when something's theoretical, that they've thought up this idea or, uh, you know, maybe they've just personally done it, but they haven't talked to a lot of customers. You tend to get a lot more nuance about it. But also so many of the deck templates are in this you know, problem, solution, mm-hmm. market, structure. And I, I like narrative. I think we, we learn better, we understand better, and it communicates more emotionally when you're telling stories. And so I often am encouraging people in their decks to start with a narrative. You know, here's an example of a person with a problem and why there are no viable solutions for them now. And then let's talk about what that looks like and feels like when they're engaging with the solution that you're now bringing forth. And then that's a really easy sort of arc for people to follow. And then they can engage and sympathize with that customer and you know, understand why that that person would be wanting to pay money for a solution. Uh, and that, that kind of checks all those boxes in a very kind of organic, natural way, which unfortunately is fairly rare. I, I, one of the things I spend the most time doing, and I don't think it's the most useful, but it's fixing people's pitch decks. Is helping them walking through it, asking the questions, making sure that they're providing the information they need to. They're not providing information they don't, simplifying it, focusing in, getting them to really think about what is the secret sauce? What is it about the business you're creating that makes it exciting and something that's going to be this tremendous success and is uh, some insight that you have that the market doesn't? And that's that's one of those things I also look for is what's the what's the realization you have had at some point that ah, all of these other people trying to solve this problem are not understanding it correctly or we are understanding it in a different way that allows us to disrupt or you know displace or change change the playing field in some way to advantage you. Because you never want to play in a fair fight, right? It's all gotta be a matter of how do you redefine what the competition environment is in a way that you naturally win. That's perfect. And in a, in a sense, when you're doing that with the deck, you're doing that with the business also, right? Because they, they are thinking more, thinking about the deck and necessarily having to 
adjust their thinking about the business and, and probably their actions too, right? You're right. Yeah. In the process of going through the deck and talking about how do we express this, it really forces them to then have that thought process and work through what they're talking about. Yeah. And do you have a predetermined opinion about the need for having technical co-founders or a technical team at, before raising funds or, or something like that? Well, if it is a technical company, right, you're going to need to be building some technological set of products. I think it's important to have that capability in place when you're going out. Uh, now, it doesn't necessarily need to be in-house. You could have a partnership with a development company that's going to do this for you. Uh, and there's a whole spectrum. So you know, if the company is all about the technology, that becomes more and more important and you want to have it closer in. Whereas if it's a marketplace, I would say, how little technology can you do? Can you go get some white labeled marketplace tool, slap your logos on it, you know, do some minimal tweaking, maybe some no code stuff and get it out there. Uh, there's zero value added to the company for building your own marketplace unless the existing tools just simply can't do the thing you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is pretty unique to the particular company involved. But yeah, the, the more technology is at the heart of the business, the more as an investor, I want to see that inside the company. Otherwise, the company doesn't actually own mo very much value. Yeah, the, the way I, I like to think of it is the more R&D you need in terms of technology, the more to have it solved before venturing out, let's say. Unless, of course, you do the route of service concierge while you do the R&D and, and build, build an actual a viable business, even though not not scalable. That's right. But if it's yeah, if it's technological R and D, I think that's a that's a really good way of of measuring that. That if there's no R and D component, or at least no R component, right? You're not yeah. needing to do any research. Yeah. There's no question marks about the ability to build this thing. Then yeah. the technology is just a supporter. It isn't core, and you can probably outsource that or or find it in some other way. Whereas if what you're trying to do is cutting edge in some way, so it's not obvious that it will be possible, you know, and that you're going to need to invent some new things to make that happen, you know, that's where you really do need that technical co-founder. Yeah. But it is, I think, useful to have, whether they're a, a co-founder as such or just really early executive hires uh, or, or even just a board of directors, but surrounding yourself with some other people who can hold your feet to the fire, who can make you accountable for you know, all the deliverables that there are in the business that will challenge your thinking and assumptions. You know, just having more than one person in the room, I think yeah. improves the quality of the thinking and outcome tremendously. Yeah, and, and of course, it's always better to have a technical co-founder than not have one, unless of course it's a bad one, but- There is nothing worse than a bad co-founder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, the reason I became so involved with this question of do we need a technical founder to start is because there are no, not enough technical co-founders for all the great non-technical people out there, especially available, right? The market is so hot. Developers are being very well paid and the ones that want to venture out on their own are rare, or 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 they they have their own ideas and not the the same idea as you uh, non technical founder would. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true that it's it's challenging. It's a uh, a tight market. I, I think it really needs to be approached in some ways similar to fundraising. You know, when you're going out mm -hmm. and talking to angels or VCs, uh, 
you are in a very competitive market, right? We're seeing huge numbers of companies and, and writing fairly few checks individually. How do you stand out? Yeah. I think when you're looking for co-founders, when you're talking to engineers, there's got to be that same level of, of passion and selling taking place because really what you need to do is infect someone else with your vision so that they go from being someone who's thinking about which job do I want to take to being someone who's like, I want to be part of achieving this objective, this goal. I believe this is the the, the way that this amazing outcome is going to happen. And I want to be part of that. And I want to go on that ride and trying to get that buy-in. It really forces you to be an evangelist for the business process that you've created. I have a perception that I want to check with you if, if it matches your perception. For me, recently, and let's say the last three years or so, I think there are more interested slash available investors out there than developers. And, and that changes the odds for attracting developers. Am I too far off in your experience? You know, that certainly the amount of money flowing into uh, Angel and VC has been growing dramatically. And things like crowdfunding and syndicates mm -hmm. are also changing that uh, ecology substantially. So people who know how to play those games or who have good connections, they're well-networked, um, being able to raise the initial uh, capital for the company, I think, is becoming easier, although most of the money that's flowing into the ecosystem is actually flowing into the later stages. Yeah. So, you know, coming into the BCD rounds, going more into the institutional. But there's still, yeah, there is a lot of money sloshing around, a huge number of new sort of pre-seed funds popping up trying to address these areas. Um, but I think now that we're getting more comfortable with the virtual uh, work, the potential array of technical co-founders that you can go after has expanded substantially. So yeah. I work with a number of companies where the non-technical founder is located in the US or the UK or something like that, whereas their technical co-founder or VP of engineering uh, is somewhere in Eastern Europe, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may be less able to access angel or VC capital themselves. So they want to be an entrepreneur, but it's more challenging for them to launch a company. And that makes yeah. them more interested in potentially getting on board with, with your startup. So expanding yeah. kind of the sphere of where you look for co-founders uh, can help a lot. Yeah, that's that's a great thing. I'm from from Brazil and South America is like a huge hub in terms of software development and has a great community. Even Though it has always been hard to find technical co-founders here as well, but if mm -hmm. you it, it, the the advantage for U.S. founders in terms of access to capital and network and the whole ecosystem, to to be frank, not not only capital and net, network, the whole ecosystem. It sounds right what you're saying. Like a U.S. founder would have a much better chance of attracting uh, a Brazilian technical co-founder than a Brazilian founder or uh, I don't know someone from other other places, right? Yeah, that that seems to be sort of the the pattern I'm seeing, which you know, is, is unfair to the non-technical founders in those other places, but it, yes. reality is what it's it is. <laughs> but, but of course, and then maybe this is a great segue to, there are other ways if you don't find a, a technical founder, which you briefly mentioned no code. 
And it's been in a huge interest of mine recently because I've seen in the last couple of years people being able to build products like robust products with no code in a way that really wasn't possible until very recently. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of, it forces you to take on a somewhat technical role, but mm -hmm. it you don't have to be, a, you know, a master coder who's you know, understands all the internals of, of C or Java or whatever programming language you're working in. Uh, yeah, it's amazing how robust a set of tools you can you can create. Uh, the automation platforms for integrating uh, different tool sets are getting uh, pretty easy to use and and quite reliable. So you're right. Yeah, one of the options that you certainly have, uh, certainly for your MVP and 1.0 versions, yeah. is to go that low-code, no-code route to build a functional product uh, that allows you to, again, you know, collect that data, prove out the model, uh, demonstrate the user interest and traction, at which point you should be able to raise enough capital to hire your engineering team or yeah. to bring in that outside firm if it turns out you need to. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a requirement. If that is a robust enough solution to carry you forward, there's no hurry in in reinventing the wheel. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to suggest that people hold off on doing any hard development as long as they can, uh, yeah. because you never know when you're going to change direction or pivot or, or have some other set of needs than you thought you did. Yeah, that's that's the that's my take on it uh, as well. I I'm a software developer myself. I've I've, I've trained. I was a non-technical founder, became the CTO of of my startup, and then grew on top of it. But still, I don't like to to invest in creating custom software unless it's really necessary. Even even with my uh, skills, I I prefer because just to be very practical. If I have a website that I did with Ruby on Rails and it has an integration with a CRM pipe drive, I need to change something in this integration. And right now only myself or other developers can do it. And if I had created this website, a very simple website with Squarespace and integrated with pipe drive using Zapier, just a very simple no-code uh, example, I would be able to change this integration without the need for a developer. And postponing exactly. this, uh, and of course, we're talking a very, about a very small case. Imagine having a business on top of this and being able to change and maintain much better, not, not necessarily better, because a very well-built custom software will be better than than this mashup of no-code tools, but definitely more, less expensive and faster to build and maintain, right? Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of really important uh, differentiators. One is the maintenance tail. Yeah. Right? So people think about how much work is it to build this tool? How how, how long will it take me to create uh, this, this, this piece of software? but they don't think about the fact that this is now a millstone that you need to carry around forever. And as the software evolves, you're gonna to need to tweak it. Every time you wanna make a change, you're gonna to need to bring in your own engineers to change that. Uh, no one else is updating it. And the other thing you said is, you know, hand-coded high quality application is often superior. And it is, that doesn't mean that's what you're getting is a really yeah. fine hand-coded <laughs> quality application. And so, 
uh, in many cases, I think taking some off-the-shelf components and gluing them together may in fact produce a nicer solution yep. than what you can probably afford early on. Yep. You know, someone else, that is their business. They've spent a huge amount of time building that thing that you want to leverage. Uh, if it's sort of a small piece of what you're doing, it makes no sense for you to try to rebuild what this other company did at the same level of quality they were able to do it. And frankly, I think you're unlikely to achieve that. Yeah, and then when you already have a great baseline for with this no-code composition, it's much easier even to hire someone to to build the the tool because you know what needs to be done. You've you you have a baseline, you have a benchmark. That's right. Effectively, the the original version becomes your requirements document. Exactly. It needs to do all of these things. Plus, exactly. we now have some additional features. But right, you validated it. You know that it has the right capabilities. It, it supports the workflow that your customers like. You've been able to evolve that um, quickly and on your own before kind of setting it in stone. And even then, I would argue, uh, how, how much can you do that with sort of glue using existing mm -hmm. components versus uh, the, the build it yourself? I talked to one founder and they were getting advice that, oh, you need to build this yourself because if you don't, you don't have intellectual property. And it's really important that you have this intellectual property. And I was like, well, but if the intellectual property you're building is commodity and it isn't what your business is to do, right? That's not the purpose, the reason for you to exist. I would think for most investors and, and, and for the value of the company, it, it really doesn't add anything at all. And in fact, it's almost a negative value because now you've got this thing that you need to maintain forever. Yeah, I mean, no one no one no one sets up and runs their own mail servers anymore, right? That, it makes no sense at all. You can go to someone else, yeah. they'll do a much better job. You know, they're they they've got all the spam filters better than you're ever going to get. Just outsource that. And exactly. so many other things are like that. Yeah, and and people are so comfortable outsourcing like their server infrastructure to the cloud today, but they still think they need to to their marketplace themselves to to have the 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 IP. Now uh, coming back uh, to to your personal experience a little bit, I'm really curious about your uh, I would say lateral or parallel move to head marketing and science because I'm I'm also a I think I like marketing and communication even more than than product and and business and and, and this. All, all this stuff, but I'm also very technical and, 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 and I, I want to know the details to learn a little bit from your experience. So I, I had some interesting sort of formative experiences that I think led me to this, this balance between communications and technology. Uh, back when I was in high school, I got a job working in a local science museum. And my job was to walk around and explain the exhibits to the tourists who were visiting and help them understand it. And so the whole job was really meeting these people, quickly understanding where they were at, how much they understood, and then sort of giving them that next level at a way that they could understand it. Uh, and it was you know, way better than making hamburgers as a job, but I didn't realize how much useful training that gave me that I used later on. And then of course, as founder of a company, you are the face of your company and you have to learn how to do sales and marketing and PR and uh, all of that sort of thing on the fly until you get to a point where you can start hiring people. Then when I sold the company, the company that bought mine was the senior management was all 
former CIA operations people. And these were all spies. <laughs> and for them, being in the newspaper or publicly identified sort of in their career was the worst possible outcome. <laughs> and so these people had no comfort talking to the media or being public or being forward facing. And because I understood the technology, because the company ended up basically being built around the, the tools that they acquired from me, I uh, could communicate that out. And so I sort of defaulted to becoming the face of the company and helping them structure, how do you talk about this and getting out of their own way, really thinking about how to simplify the way you present and talk about this very complex technology that, that we were creating. Uh, and so in addition to then being, you know, I chaired our technical advisory board, I was involved in a lot of the product stuff. Yeah, just by natural evolution over time, because I kept having to work with the marketing department to refine what they were saying, uh, to make sure that it was effective as communication, but also technically accurate because the marketing people didn't understand the products well enough. And so they'd often hear someone say something and then I'd, I'd see it translated into a document. You look at it and go, that's not, that's not quite right. It kind of misrepresents things in an important way. And so grabbing control of that allowed me to make sure that we really captured the truth and a very detailed, nuanced discussion of you know why this was superior how this was you know competitively advantageous compared to any of the other options that might be out there yeah a very unique scenario like uh, <laughs> it is right it's, it's a one-of-a-kind <laughs> path <laughs> I, I i started to to do the communication because my, my the others actually were former cia agents i i, I had never heard that one <laughs> The other thing I'll say is at dinner parties, I just shut up when I'm with them because they have way better stories oh, than I do. <laughs> oh, I imagine so. <laughs> Nowadays, how, how do you distribute your your time between advising, doing uh, your content, doing the, the, the whole work in the ecosystem you do right now? So I'd say I'm probably spending about... 10% of my time on, on angel investing actively and really focus on that. Uh, and then the, mo the rest of the time is sort of evenly divided between uh, direct one-on-one -on -one advising and mentoring and coaching, uh, both through people who come in through my website directly as well. Uh, I'm a global entrepreneur in residence with the Founder Institute. And so I work mm -hmm. a lot with their cohorts and, and directly one-on-one -on -one with, with their Uh, companies, as well as uh, running some of their sessions and giving talks and so forth, uh, balanced with then producing the feel the boot content, developing the videos, writing the blogs, uh, and managing that side of things. That's sort of the the fifty fifty uh, balance there. And at this point, you know, I don't have the the, the day job, so that takes as much time as I want to give it. Yeah. But then again, I'm living up here in wine country with a vineyard in my backyard, and so uh, I also want to make sure that I'm taking time to to enjoy that aspect of life as well. Yeah, sure. After many years of creating security technology and and privacy stuff, being able to to enjoy the the wine and 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 the space there. That's right. You got to reap the rewards a little bit. You can't you you, you stop and appreciate the success. I remember one of my uh 
uh, mentor has said, yeah, it's important periodically to stop, declare victory, and celebrate because yeah. otherwise you can just always be chasing the next thing. Yeah, and were you, as a founder, uh, were you able to enjoy life while doing this or was this like very, very hard and driven? You know, it was pretty all-consuming, but I think it's important to carve off, decide what are the things that are really important and then make them sacred. Like yes. for me, I work out in the morning. And so hitting the gym and getting that time to get that exercise in is non-negotiable. You know, things need to be unbelievably important and rare for me to allow a meeting or something else to stomp on that time. Similarly, I sit down to dinner with my wife every night, you know, with very rare exceptions. Those kind of anchor my day and help make things rational and comfortable. Uh, and, and, and provide some balance with work. Now, when I was in the middle of the startup, the other thing I was doing was I was doing Kung Fu. And I found that incredibly useful. Being able to get away from the office and yell and scream and hit things and sweat a lot was hugely cathartic and helped maintain some of that balance uh, and get that stress out. Uh, and you, you need some outlets there. Otherwise, it can't. It can take over your whole life and it'll drive you crazy. Yeah, and uh, do you think do you think entrepreneurship is for everyone, or is it for a specific kind of people, or what what does it take? You you certainly need to have a passion, right? This is going to be a many year journey, and it's going to be a huge amount of work, and you need to be comfortable with that, right? This has to be something you're willing to commit to at that level, uh, as well. You need to be temperamentally able to deal with the stress. It is an incredibly stressful journey. There are going to be crises left and right. You're going to uh, feel like it's never going to work you know, over and over again. You may, you know, my experience, we probably spent 18 months in the early years of the company with less than two weeks of work, working capital in the bank, right? We're right on that razor's edge. And, uh, you know, Things will come up that you're sure are going to destroy the company, and then you need to somehow get creative and scramble your way back. Uh, if that sounds like something that is just going to be terrible and you know, you're going to get ulcers, and uh, then that's not the right answer, right? You, you yeah. need to be comfortable with uncertainty at a level that you don't experience in most other parts yeah. of life. Uh, now, if you can embrace that, if you can sort of relax into that and say, yeah, um, sort of like Bruce Lee's mind like water, you're just going to react to things as they happen. And you've got a vision of where you want to go, but you're able to sort of just take in whatever impacts you and, and flow around it and move forward, then that can be an amazing experience. I, I certainly really, really enjoyed it as hard as it was. Yeah. And, and for me, I find, I find that, that I can't not start companies like uh, I tried for a while and that's just what I did all my life. Uh, I think it's a little like doing a PhD that if you can live without doing it, you should probably live without doing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like this. <laughs> But, you know, if it's just this thing, it, it's it's something you've got to do. You realize that, you know, you're, you're willing to sort of do whatever it takes to make that happen. Then that's a good sign that this is a path that you might want to think about. And as, as we're headed toward the, the last questions here, one thing I want to know, want to, if, if you can, share with us two examples of investments you made. One where you were sure it was going to be a hit and it ended up, ended up flopping. 
another one where you you felt it was like a long shot, very low probability, and it, it turned out great. It doesn't doesn't need to be like uh, financial success necessarily, but but great investment in a broader sense. So I can I can certainly give you an example. I didn't personally invest, but back in the '90s, one of my board members and investors brought me a company to look at. And so he brought me their business plan and their investment deck and he wanted my feedback. Like, is this something that I thought that he should go with? And, uh, you know, it was a, a person-to-person payment system using Palm Pilots where you'd infrared beam data to the other person and then you'd go home and sync the Palm Pilots. And so it was this whole big complicated thing for how you were gonna pay people. And I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen, run away. Um, fortunately, he didn't listen to me and he did invest in PayPal and did extremely <laughs> well. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it was rough back then. That, that, that deck and that business plan was terrible. But he had something that I didn't is he'd met the team. Yeah. And he was really investing in the founding team uh, and believing that they would be able to sort of p- pivot their way to a successful outcome, which they did. Yes, they right? did. Yeah, very successful. Um, ones that I thought would be successful and 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 weren't. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of companies, like I was working with a company that had an incredibly viral strategy, and so it was doing sort of collaborative sports watching in real time. So you'd get together in this virtual hangout with your friends, uh, and you know, invite them in to watch the college football game, and then they'd invite other people in to watch the basketball game or what have you. It really lent itself to that viral growth model, and I was very excited by that. Um, unfortunately, their execution of the product, particularly in terms of onboarding, mm-hmm. didn't work. And so they they the the funnel had such a large drop off that even though it was viral, they never got that virality wheel going. They didn't uh they they didn't pay enough attention and I probably didn't even realize the degree to which it was important how that loop that how easy can you get make it to get on board and using it and then invite more people to use it. That just had to be like silk going through. And they spent a lot of time building out the experience of using it as Mm -hmm. a product and putting in lots of features. Uh, And so when people were finally able to use it, they thought it was pretty cool, but it just couldn't generate that, that flywheel. And then of course they couldn't raise money because they didn't have the growth curve. And so they ran out of money, which is the ultimate sin and ended up having to, uh, to wind it up, but that that was that was a sad one because the business model was so tasty. If they just could have gotten that going, but it's always a race, right? Especially this is not a technical founder, so he was paying people to do development, mm-hmm. and it was a race. Can you get enough traction to prove that this is viable to get outside investment before you fall off the cliff? And that's really one of those reasons why it's so important to be uh, just brutal in what you don't build and build as little as possible yeah. because you don't have that luxury. You need to prove this stuff out as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, and, and in this case, the technology for basically referrals, I, I guess, like the way to the, the way you, you bring more people um, on, on a peer-to-peer basis is your marketing channel, is your marketing strategy. And in, in that sense, if you're outsourcing it to someone else, 
for someone else to build it from scratch, it's a huge risk. But if you were outsourcing to, like we were discussing before, um, a referrals program tool or something like that, that that already um, integrates and already validated their conversion rates and their retention, uh, their, their everything related to to attracting more people, maybe maybe it might have worked. Yeah, but exactly. I think uh, if, if he'd been able to bring in some off the, the shelf tool or even just refocused his, his efforts on going with a much more minimum viable product for the product and then iterating and iterating and iterating on that, that onboarding and inviting and that viral loop piece to make that as, as simple as possible and incentivizing it, right? Always reminding people to invite people. And as soon as they're, you know, anyone is invited to a thing, they're also part of the ecosystem and you can now market to them and really focusing on, on that piece. And then also, I think how you go to market. I read some great analyses of, of the Facebook approach and how they went university by university and made yeah. sure that they could get critical mass in each place mm-hmm. before moving to the next one uh, and getting sort of uh, interest lists in place. So you knew that day one when you launched, you would already have some critical mass to go out there. I think uh, there was far too much of a build it and they were they will come mm-hmm. kind of hope-based mm-hmm. strategy around this as opposed to being you know, very specific about uh, building that out and, and achieving those user uh, numbers quickly. In other words, it's execution, but a very specific form of execution that, that made a difference. Just, just to come back to the PayPal example, because I cannot uh, keep myself from commenting, you probably felt like DECA record when they failed to sign the Beatles at this moment. They said, no, no, don't want to sign this band. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, you, you, as an investor, I think it's critical to, to make peace with the fact that you are going to say no yeah. to lots of hugely successful companies. And you just wish them well and go, yeah, yep, I made the wrong call on that one. But you say no so often, it's it's totally inevitable. Amazing, man. One last question before we, we wrap this up. A non-technical founder approaches you just with an idea. What's the very first thing they should do? Very first step. Very first step is start talking to your potential customers. Before anything else, understand where does this fall in their priorities? How, how uh, would they use it? What do they care about? What, how are they solving this problem now? Right? What are the alternatives that are out there? Um, try to get some sense around how, how much better you need to be. And this is one of the things I see all the time, technical and non-technical, where they've built a tool that is better than the existing solution. Maybe, maybe quite a bit better. But their competition isn't the other solutions. The competition is all the other distractions that their customers have. And so, yeah, the thing they're selling would be an improvement on what they're doing now. But in terms of priorities, it's number 25 after this whole bunch of other really urgent issues. They're never going to buy your product, even though, you know, it, it would be better for them. So when you're talking to those customers, it's important to ask the question correctly, right? The question isn't, would this be useful or would you like to buy this or would you like to have this said if this was something that came across your desk today in light of everything that's going on in your business would you stop and start work on implementing or buying the solution or would it just sort of get filed somewhere and forgotten about and so many businesses right they have something that's good 
but it doesn't match that criteria. And so it's never going to be the thing that someone goes after next. Yeah. Awesome, man. Lance, I feel like we could go on for hours and hours. I have so many interesting things I could ask you. So I hope we can do something like this again in the future. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much. This was a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. Amazing, man. Bye, people. Thanks. Hey, I really, really hope this episode contributed to your journey and you were able to enjoy the conversation. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app. I'm Daniel Weinman, and this was Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. <laughs>